This is The Thirst Tank, presented by Trap Brewing Company. Hops is possibly one of the most unique supply chain um, products in the world because you can talk to the breeder, you can talk to the grower, you can talk to the um, supply chain as in terms of the um, distribution channels, uh, you talk to the brewer and then the brewer talks to the consumer and the whole way up and down that channel, if there's a little wee chink in the armour, then that affects the product. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Thirst Time, the show that takes a deep dive into the careers and journeys of some of the most creative minds in the craft beer industry today. Today we have a bit of a special episode for you, uh, as this week we go further up the supply chain and we talk to Brent McClashen, a fifth generation hop farmer from New Zealand. Now Brent farm, uh, Brent's farm, sorry, uh, Mac Hops, are the first, I believe, New Zealand farm to partner with the Yakima Chief, which means that from next year these hops will have global reach, but... We had the great privilege of being the first brewery, I believe, in Europe to use them. And if you're listening to this on the Wednesday morning when it's released, then at 12 p.m. we will be releasing our collaboration Top to Toe Double IPA featuring Nelson, Motueka and Rakao. And you might want to head over and bag yourself a few cans after this interview. Um, It was great to sit down with Brent and learn more about his family's history and get a sense of the passion and care that goes into growing these hops, which I hope strengthens your appreciation for the work that goes on further up the supply chain. I've had a little try of our collaboration this morning and it's tasting really, really good. So you should probably bag those cans. And yeah, it's in no part due to the amazing varieties that we got access to thanks to Yakima Chief and Brent. A big thank you to Brent again for doing this. I kind of sprang this on him and to Yakima Chief for asking us to be a part of this Farm to Pint project. So let's get into it. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the Thirst Time and this is our interview with Brent McClash. Well, if we go way, way back, our family um, has been growing hops since the year 1900. Um, so I'm now fifth generation um, growing on our soils in, in little old New Zealand. So we were back um, where the originals sort of started. Um, hops in New Zealand itself, um, they were introduced into the country from uh, German and also England settlers who came in back in the 18. 18- 60s, 1870s, they decided that they needed some beer at some stage. So they wondered if hops could grow in New Zealand. And there's my great aunt, she died when she was 94, but she was a great historian and she um, has, uh, she dedicated part of her life to researching when the first hop plants were planted and, wow. and the information about them. And there's documented evidence of when the first um, hops got exported to actually to England, back to England on the boats that went back and they were... Um, overjoyed that they could get hops from New Zealand, and again, it came with a difference and a difference difference in flavour and taste. So, right from the early early days, um, environment, climate, everything was um, showed that hops could thrive in New Zealand. So. so funny that they have that quintessential New Zealand mark so early in uh, history. Yeah, because obviously now the way that I know New Zealand hops is that they have so characterful but like a very precise kind of character to them they've they've got an intensity about them that maybe you don't 
yeah. get elsewhere. Sorry. So you, yeah. you were obviously born your fifth generation. Do you remember kind of first going into like the harvest fields and running around the farm and kind of learning about the actual plant as well itself? Yeah. So, um, when I was a young fella, uh, we pretty much lived our lives on the farm. Um, we didn't have a big farm back then. We were still, at the time, there would have been maybe 30 or 40 growers in the New Zealand hop system, but all very small farms. Um, we had machines at that stage. Hand picking stopped in the early 1960s, so I'm not that old. <laughs> 1981, I was born. So, um, yeah, when we came through, I've got... Um, I've got an identical twin brother and I've got an older brother and an older sister. So when we were at um, sort of primary school, we would race each other back from the um, from school um, to throw the bikes down and to see who got the best job on the machine. Wow. And dad absolutely loved it because he could kick people off who were getting four or five dollars an hour in wages and would be getting paid 50 cents. And <laughs> Child labour. Child labour. Child yep. labour. I yep. hope, you know, don't yeah. want to get him in trouble or anything, exploiting his children at that no, early age. No, no, so, but we loved it. And um, so March has always been a very fond family time for us and, and, our, and our staff and our workers. And, um, yeah, we sort of, I went through to um, boarding school um, and it was always hard to miss out. I'd, I'd only get back in the weekends to help on the farm, mm -hmm. um, but still we, we got our fix. Yeah. Um, then I went off to uh, university and studied um, a Bachelor of uh, Agricultural Commerce and although it wasn't anything to do with sort of horticulture or growing things, it still opened a lot of doors to... Um, how awesome the farming industry is. Um, Were so. you really, throughout that time, because obviously you've, you've left the farm, you're back on weekends, it's obviously still something that you hold so dear to your heart. Mm. Was your head always focused on getting back to the farm? No. Or were you thinking, no. No, it was, you know, it was I'll, not I'll leave it? I, I, you know, mum and dad never put any pressure on us to, to come back to the farm. My mum's Swiss, so she came into the system when she was very young too, and she, she was 25 or 27 when she married dad, a Swiss girl, come out to New Zealand, find an absolutely handsome hop grown bloke. <laughs> and, uh, he the rest had, is history. The rest is history. So there was no pressure ever put on us. Um, I had a huge amount of respect for my granddad too. Um, he was an amazing, hard-working fella. Um, you know, he'd come over and been to the Second World War and had all the problems that were associated post-war with mm -hmm. things like that and he'd come through the the depression times of farming and, and living in New Zealand um so yeah tremendous amount of respect for what he did and how he could grow things yeah um, I always remember granddad saying to me if you can grow good vegetables and grow them without fertilizer and stuff you'll make a good hop grower so wow um yeah I learned a lot of traditional ways off him as well too um, so, and then, yeah, I, after university, I still didn't know what I'd like to do. I'd been through various crop farmings and, and, um, anywhere from wheat, barley, sunflowers, um, and then, uh, into some dairy, did some dairy stints, um, and also some sheep and beef and deer mm -hmm. and, and worked in some amazing farms. And again, just gained more ideas, went and did two harvests in the outback of grain and wheat. Um, and covered a lot of countryside, um, saw what it was like for farming in drought-tolerant mm -hmm. environments, um, soil structures, soil conditions, everything like that. And then, so even though, so even though this isn't focused on 
hops, but it's still farming. Agriculture is yeah. it's in your blood. You're 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 you're, yeah. you're heading towards this. You might not know that you're going to head right Ex- back yeah, home. Exactly, but it's but it's there. Yeah, yeah. So and then I sort of travelled. Um, after university, I travelled doing these things and travelled for five or six years, and I'd always go back for our hop harvest. Mm-hmm. And then after about the fifth year, I was I thought right, I better. Um, I got offered to go and work on an American hop farm, and uh, so I went over and worked for Loftus Ranches, um, the Smith family, and um, an amazing family, lovely, lovely family, and they obviously had a lot of size to their business mm-hmm. that was bigger than the whole New Zealand industry. Wow. So as soon as I sort of stepped off the plane and walked into an environment like that, it just sort of blew your mind at, at the size. Um, so I was very lucky to see that, and then... Unfortunately, it was sort of still kind of at the, the the downturn stage of where the market was at. You know, things weren't pretty in the hop growing sector. And when I decided to go back onto the farm completely, um, my brother-in-law joined me as well. Um, he had been in, in forestry and stuff and, and sort of was looking at somewhere else to go. So um, we went back on the farm together and, and um, it was at a time that we probably were the youngest people back on hop farms and, you know, world hop growing because... You know, the parents were saying, I don't know if there's really much of a future, you know, in this for you because it was quite bleak. That was when hops were still treated as a commodity product. This is so interesting because yeah, obviously yeah. now we're, you know, preceding this new wave of craft beer where things have just gone up and up yeah. and up. And the yeah. demand, you know, like in, in the UK alone, there's 2,000 plus breweries now. And yeah. I, I don't know the numbers in, in New Zealand. Um, so let's put a pin in you there. Yeah. So we've kind of got back to the farm, but let's yep. dive back into the history of the hops because yep. you 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 were touching on something, and I this is a problem of mine. I just jump all over the place, <laughs> but it's super fascinating. So it was, as always, Brits want to drink whilst not in England, so they they settled in New Zealand. Did say was yep. it German German and British settlers? Did you say yes, yep, traditionally? Yeah. Yep, yep. um, you know, bringing so, that beer culture with them. Hmm. Um, do you, can you kind of give us a little bit of a historic note of what kind of, you know, what, what hot breeds were even prevalent at that time and, and, and scale and, you know, what was the, I guess this, like you touched on again, like hand picking, hmm. this is yep. labor intensive work. Yeah. So um, at, at the time we were seeing mainly just English settlers come out, my great, great, I don't know, great, I suppose. I'm not going to do the maths, but, you know, <laughs> ages ago, um, came out and um, he was first a, um, a, a, a like a flax and rope weaver. So he was actually, he ended up making some of the twine that used to string up on the hops, but before that they were using wooden poles to string up hops and that's how it used to be done. So you got the English and some German varieties come in, but it wasn't many. I mean, there were not many hop breeds in the world at the time. There may have been a handful. Um, and so a hop was just a hop, you know, and then um, it wasn't until probably about the, you know, the, the 30s and the 40s and things, and then there would have been prohibition in America and stuff, so hops weren't really considered a futuristic crop as such. Um, and then as it came through the system, we got more breeding material from America and from around the world, and things started to move, and it was about the 19. 1950s, I think New Zealand hops um, actually had set up with um, what was called the DSIR back there, and it was a, a um, government-run organisation um, to um, produce better hop varieties, um, apples, 
kiwifruit were, weren't quite started there. It was the Chinese gooseberry, but then it came into kiwifruit a bit later. So they were a body that was there for horticulture in New Zealand and they were scientists. So I think the breeding program in New Zealand has started back about 1950. Um, so we've got a lot of history behind some very, very good scientists who have come through, um, like, you know, my granddad came through with Dr. Rudy Roborg, and he was the only person in the world who bred out um, um, Phytophthora root rot. You know, at times back then, you would have to replace your hop gardens every three to four years because the plants still rotted out. Wow. You know, nowadays, our varieties last until the market's finished or we're into a different flavour profile that brewers are after. Um, so it was a phenomenal find of how he managed to breed that out. And... Um, He's held with a lot of respect to this day um, with what he achieved, you know, on the back of his own scientific knowledge. And then um, Dr. Ron Beetson, who, you know, just recently Nectaron has been named after him. Um, Nectar being the nectar of the gods and Dr. Ron is considered a bit of a god around, you know, world hop breeding. That's so cool. So, um, you know, it's amazing how we have been able to, and, and I think 1980-something was the last international plant swap of varieties all around the world. So um, breeders from Germany, America, um, England, Czech Republic, New Zealand, Australia all shared a certain gene pool with each other so that they could enhance the breeding of everyone else's programs. Um, so in that time, New Zealand was um, had the opportunity to, to share things around. And it was quite interesting because people thought that they could take, everyone thought they could take a variety that would grow well in some environment, it'll grow great in the same environment or, you know, overseas. But it, it turned out it didn't. So, you know, something very, very interesting is the likes of, um, we got uh, Cascade came to New Zealand as well too. And, and, and Cascade could arguably one of the, you know, help found some of the microbrewing yeah, you know, yeah, in, in, in the, the American system. Yeah. And it adapted over 30 odd years in our program. We didn't actually have it as a commercial release because we hadn't discovered or found its profile and it, and it started to change. So the reason Cascade is now through New Zealand hops is called Taiheke. It's, it's still a Cascade plant, but it has changed so much. <laughs> you put it in front of brewers and they're like... They don't recognise it as Cascade like, in any way. Why have you given us the wrong thing to select <laughs> from? And we're like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, this isn't Cascade. And so that's an amazing thing to show how the plants can, can change over time to an environment um, and, and how it's adapted and... Yeah, so it's there is a very uniqueness that goes on in New Zealand, and sometimes it's unexplainable. But it's in our soils, it's in our land, it's it's um, yeah, and and that's what I learnt, learnt in America as well too. You know, Yak the Yakima Valley gets about eight inches of rain a year. Well, um, I just left New Zealand, and in the month of July we had five hundred and twenty mils of rain, a record rainfall. You know, so that's so it's just a totally different. It's it's totally yeah. different, and again, from being through you know um, English hop growing fields, being into German hop growing fields and American hop growing fields, a hop just isn't a hop. You know, uh, our drying systems are similar, but we in New Zealand have a, a thicker strig, a, a core. So you can bring. It's great to bring brewers up to the kilns because they get a lovely waft of aroma, and it's it's quite a 
neat place to show people and you can show them over the hours that the hops have been on the kilns, you know, the loss of moisture and that's what you're trying to, you're drying a flower, you know, a hop cone is, you know, a flower and you're trying to store the best content that you possibly can. So the brewer is going to basically get a pressed flower if they're getting whole cone or that flower is going to go to T90, T45, cryo, whatever it goes into as a whole package. Um, and it's amazing the brewers will come along, oh, well, when's this ready, Brent? And you, and you take them from one end to the other and they can feel, okay, right, I see what you mean now. And I'll say this has got another 15 to 20 minutes left. And they're like, but how do you know? Wow, that's so and, precise, 15 to 20 say, minutes. I just know. But yeah. we've got to be very careful as growers because you're dealing with a product with heat, with oils inside those cones, and we need to store every little bit of those oils, everything in there so that the brewer gets it as a complete package. Well, I was so. reading on your website that uh, during like harvest, you sleep like two hours a night or something. Uh, that's, like that. that's if I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And you literally I, sleep next to the kiln or something like that, was yep, it? Yep. My, my bed when I get there is uh, one and a half meters from my head of the, of the kilns. And, you know, when I was a young fella, I used to sleep down on the weekends with one of my siblings and it, it we, you know, being a bit younger, the the smell and the aroma that came off the kilns, and you're in a nice oh, man, warm stretch I can't of even bed. Imagine, and it was uh, it was quite a romantic time, I yeah. suppose you'd say. But um, Dad used to kick us out of bed at one o'clock. Come on, you're not sleeping. <laughs> You've got to give me a hand. So, New Zealand, yeah, it's special, yeah, for hop growing, yeah. You know, I've had a conversation, as I mentioned, with the guys at Crosby, and we talked a little bit about American kind of hops and stuff. And I also touched on, like, British hop culture, because obviously there's a history here. Yes. But you don't find a big market for English hops in the UK mm-hmm. in the same way, like, as a dry hopping hop, you know, yeah. as, a, as an aroma hop. Yeah, it's not too dissimilar to New Zealand size-wise. Obviously, climate is... Maybe not too dissimilar, but I guess it's just Southern Hemisphere to Northern Hemisphere. Why is New Zealand so special? Well, it's, you know, like you say, we are only 09 to 1% of the world production. We are that small fish in the big ocean that we have to have hops that make an impact because otherwise we wouldn't have an industry to where we are today. And, um you know, to give you an idea, Nelson Sovin, everyone loves Nelson Sovin. But if it wasn't for the craft beer phase, Nelson Sovin would have been dug up years ago. <laughs> and it was. You know, we were one of the first trialists of Nelson Sovin. We had it on the farm for five years and we're like, we cannot grow this That's to, to a standard of, of what the commodity product was. Because as growers, we had to grow a commodity-based hop and get volume because volume was all the big brewers were after, mm-hmm. um, and you didn't get that from niche market hops. You know, Can you just kind of uh, give us a definition of commodity-based hops? So that's just yeah. huge production, yeah. like, less kind of focus on aromas and is yes, that just a yeah, consistent so product. Just a on. consistent product that yielded for farmers because yeah. we were getting paid just above cost of production at times if we're lucky. And in the world hop market, year in, year out, you could not predict. So yeah. if you overspent in a year and you didn't make it back the following year, the, the, the farm was teetering on the brink of collapse. So it was a very, it was a very, very tough time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the whole, you know, craft beer phase come along, I remember being in America at Loftus um, ranches there and, you know, we invited the 10 top brewers, micro brewers in, in America to come to the farm and 
they were, you know, Sierra Nevada, um, Russian River, um, and oh, I can't remember if you, you know, plenty of the other guys too. Yeah. Um, and it was funny, you know, we were all standing there going, you know, the big guys are saying that this is just a phase and, and brewers will come back to us and, and, and this craft beer is not going to happen. And we're all standing going, well, bugger, let's just rip into it and keep going, you know? So what? Well, so uh, they were saying that they felt the market was just going to be commodity hop based. Yeah. Well, no, they, they or, were or hoping just... that their journey would continue. Yeah. And, and, you know, they had the drive and the the knowledge. And But it's very hard when you're starting out small, just, just like track, just yeah. like anyone else. You know, you go into um, a business with anticipation and – but some you've got to have some sort of scepticism or – bring yourself back into track, yeah. um, into place, and then all of a sudden things happen and then you start going with that wave. Yeah. Um, so, and then that was where craft beer started. And craft beer started because of brewers who were wanting to push boundaries, mm-hmm. um, brewers who wanted to have hop varieties that would push boundaries, who were prepared to pay for hop varieties that pushed boundaries. And the difference between a commodity hop of the time versus a... Um, um, a new age hop, you know, you could be losing a thousand kilograms a hectare because these new age hops really didn't have the yield profiles, but what it lacked in yield, it came back in an absolutely unbelievable, you know, aroma. Yeah. And some of these to this day, we can't explain what it does in beer. We're still learning, brewers are learning, hop farmers are learning. And the beauty about where we're at now is the collaboration between growers and brewers. You know, a lot of growers were just set to the side and said, no, this is your place in society. You're just here to grow hops. Yeah. Um, and it it was really hard for farmers to take. And any if a brewer was allowed to come to our farm, we were so excited because we're like, oh, you know, it's great to see you, you know, how's the product and, and all this sort of thing. And we'd slowly get some feedback. Well, it's and, amazing, isn't it? Because all of that graft, all of that hard work, for, you know, we're drinking water in these tins at the moment, but, you know, for, for a can or on draft. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, the part of the really exciting thing to talk to people like yourself, like hop growers and stuff, is just like how much work just goes into getting that aroma in your beer. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's it's generations, like you say, we're fifth generation of farming to try and get to a place. Yeah. And obviously maybe... I don't want to be disingenuous to your previous generations, but the generation you're in, it's a huge advancement in in oh, hop technology oh, and, and like yep. and breeding to try and really push these things yep. as far as they can possibly go. And and you won't find anyone of the older generation who'll disagree. You'll you'll talk to the 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 parents or the grandparents or whoever, and they'll just shake their head. They'll say, yep. "I can't believe where it's gone," and I I wouldn't even I couldn't even understand what to do in hop growing these days. You know. Well, so, this this is where we get back into your journey because where we just left it was. You would you basically were getting told, kind of, we don't know what future. Yeah. Yeah. So we uh, we just took a little break there because we went and did the hot pour. And I didn't actually know. I knew that there was not many people using these hops, but we're the first in Europe to actually be able to put them in a beer. Yeah. Which is super exciting. Well, and that's the first I've seen of our, you know, I've, I've flown halfway around the world to find our... First hops being amazing. It's so exciting to be able to to smell them and then put them in a beer and think in a couple of weeks going to be able to get, you know, the fruits of our labor, the fruits of your labor all the way down the supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. So I think we left this 
we were just about to dive back into your story. So you'd spent some time in America. You'd got a feel for breweries actually kind of starting to crave some interesting hot varietals and pushing the boundaries of what could be done with them. But the outlook was pretty kind of bleak, pretty gray skied back then for like um, hop. It was commodity hops and that was it. There wasn't really the vibrant market that there is today. So, but you dived in. Why? Yeah, well, we, when I went back full time on the farm, um, we only had 25 hectares of hops. Um, and, and the New Zealand hop industry was, um, it was struggling, um, not because of the varieties. It was just the fact that we, um, we were getting smaller and smaller because the, the, the kids weren't coming back onto the farms to, to take over. Um, so we, my brother-in-law and I thought, right, let's give this a crack. So um, at the time was when Germany and America were starting to experience problems with um, powdery, powdery and downy mildew. So their crops were getting hit very, very hard. It also coincided with the fact that um, there was a coal store fire in, um, in Yakima, which took out a number of hops. Oh, so wow. it sort of culminated in the fact that brewers had been so used to um, picking hops off the shelf, they knew they were always going to be there, that, that, that four contracts weren't overly um, encouraged or they just knew that they could hold prices down to farmers by not even contracting. Um, so the the big thing there was um, all these problems came up and all of a sudden there was not a hop on the world market. So New Zealand was luckily on the right side of the season that we could capitalise on that. Um, so we managed to sell every single hop for you know quite a respectable price. Mm-hmm. And that's what dragged the New Zealand industry back up again. And, so the suppression um, of one market brought yep. the New Zealand market right up? Yep, yep, wow. yep. So and that's how things used to swing with the big pendulum of, of hop growing. You used to have, you could have some good years, but there were some very hard years. Now, that story continues. We ended up um, getting our local um, iwi group, which is a local Maori group, and they've, they've got um, you know, a significant amount of land um, in the area but their technical know-how of growing hops wasn't there or they didn't have the facility. So we said, right, let's go into a partnership. They were our next-door neighbours. So they had the land, they put up the structures, we helped them with the hop growing side of things and um, we expanded our um, machinery um, and our course, uh, sorry, our um, processing equipment. And so, you know, we took the plunge and we spent a million dollars at a time that shit yeah a million dollars was gonna break you if things man this is so funny because you know generally i'm having this conversation with brewers yeah and they're doing that million dollar jump by buying all the equipment but you're doing it by buying all the equipment when the market isn't necessarily matured yeah so it's it's risky (laughs) and it was a lot of risk and we learned that risk because um the following year um america planted up fourteen thousand acres in one year and and the market collapsed again so we're back into that terrible cycle of oh crap um but we were lucky that there's all of a sudden micro brewers started coming on the scene and started respecting what hop growers actually were all about what mm-hmm. they were doing the different flavors that they were hoping to get out of hops and they changed brewing they yeah. absolutely changed it and well changed growing as well yep yeah yep yep they certainly did so you know we have a tremendous respect for every craft brewer that comes into the game um and we love learning off them um and it doesn't matter what size you get we still you know love to have people to the farm we love mm-hmm. to have um the, the feedback from i mean 
Hops is possibly one of the most unique supply chain um, products in the world because you can talk to the breeder, you can talk to the grower, you can talk the um, supply chain as in terms of the um, distribution mm-hmm. channels, uh, you talk to the brewer and then the brewer talks to the consumer and the whole way up and down that channel, if there's a little wee chink in the armour, then it affects the product. Yeah. Um, so in terms of that uniqueness and that um, ability to get back to the grower and track the trace of, of where things have come from and you know we're so damn proud when we can see our name on a can or we can see New Zealand hops on a can and things like that and go well that's really awesome you know several months of slogging your guts out and all of a sudden there's people from all around the world who are appreciating what we're doing you know let's let's go into that because it's so cool to to hear you say that because I think that's the beauty of the beer industry is that feedback loop yeah. is so strong and people are really passionate all the way up it. You do yeah. find it in obviously food and farming and cultivation of mm. livestock and all that, that stuff. But in beer, I think because we have such a strong connection with the consumer as well, you know, I mean, we're all consumers to a degree, but like yeah. we really want to listen to them and see what's working. You know, our tap room for us is just this beautiful kind of lab mm. of seeing people react to, to beers that we've produced and whatever yeah. produce we've we're using it. So you sat there with this can, you're opening it, you, you're going to drink it maybe unknowing of all of the work that's gone further up that supply chain. Yeah. Now we let's hone in on Nelson Yeah. because it's maybe the quintessential New, New Zealand yeah. hop. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, 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 it's the name of craft, you know, yeah. craft beer, um, Nelson Sovereign um, was really quite a, a, a unique characteristic and it still is to this day um, and it's the hop we're using in this beer today so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you're listening to this i'm going to try and coincide it with the release of the beer as well it makes sense <laughs> yeah. uh so when you're listening to this you might be cracking a can of our collaboration with mac hops which is a nelson and motoweka and rakao i think yeah. double ipa yeah. but let's focus on the nelson what's had to happen for that nelson to get in that beer and i mean like you you kind of alluded to a story earlier, I think, before we were recording. How did Nelson even come about to be where it is today? Well, yeah, it, it was it was um, out of the breeding program. It had been bred for I forget what the um, parentage of it was, but um, it came through as as very unique and off the spectrum unique. Where people at the time were going to be so polarized by <laughs> what it can do that they're either going to go, "Where did you pick this?" strange stuff from or else oh my gosh I can use this um, and like I say that the first entrenchment of Nelson Sovin, um, it didn't go so well because the growers couldn't viably afford to grow it mm-hmm. so it, it only started to gain legs once the craft beer scene came on um, and then people were seeking that difference in taste and it still to this day is the only form of hop that you really can get a, a wine type, you know, that's, I mean, the naming of it's brilliant too, Sovin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just over two and a half or two hours drive from where we um, farm is um, Marlborough. Marlborough Savion Blanc has gotten probably very well renowned in the last 10 years of what the, the soils can create mm-hmm. some of the best Savion Blanc in the world. And that's why Nelson Sovin was named Nelson Sovin because it would have that grape-like characteristic, that winey type thing that no one else can get it. But then also as it's progressed, as our palates have changed, as the 
um, the the no sniffers on everyone's face has changed. You know, people are picking up a sort of a, a diesel characteristic mm. and things like this. Now, back back 20 years ago, people just taught hops as hops. Yeah. And, and it was what was the alpha levels, what were the beta, you know, levels. Um, oils were very little little considered. Um, and But now people, you know, brewers are going to a smell and rub or they get it, you know, delivered to the brewery and they're going, they're challenging themselves, right, what am I smelling out of this yeah. and, and what can we get out of this? And I absolutely love it and hearing everyone's smells and things, um, what they can pick up from it because we're all unique and, you know, you can put you can put samples out in front of several different brewers and one will go on the same sample, this is just disgusting, I can't <laughs> use this. But then there's another brewer who comes along and goes, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Exactly I know what exactly, exactly what I'm looking for. And that shows that there's a lot of chefs in a kitchen and everyone has the ability to see what they want to do. You know, we th- I think of hops as like um, the spice cabinet in, in the chef's kitchen and chefs will reach for different um, spices to, to add to the flavour of their food. And you go to seven of the same restaurants and seven different chefs and mm-hmm. you'll get seven different outcomes. Yeah. Um, and that's the beauty about it. And we're dealing with the flower. The flower's harvesting sunlight. It's harvesting nutrients in the soil. Um, and we will not get it the same year in, year out because we won't have the same environment. We certainly aren't these days. Yeah. Um, so as growers, we are constantly having to recheck ourselves as into um, harvest windows, as into how's the season grown, when were the hops trained, um, the fertiliser requirements that the soil has taken up from, oh, the plants taken up by the soil. Um, there's so many variables and they seem like they're even more so these days with the, the, the changes we're having in the climate. Mm-hmm. So, um, so so yeah, let's, let's go back to the journey of this beer that you might be just cracking as you're listening to this. That Nelson was selected and it was nearly thrown out because it was too hard to actually yield anything wor- worthy of, of financial yep. gain. And it's yep. just so you're just putting in loads of work to get nothing out. Yep. But then there was something about it that sparked interest well, through, I- through brewers brewing it, which has then gone on to launch it into the stratosphere of yeah. godly hops, really. I don't think it's yep. ever going to come down from that mantle of... No, it's, it, a, it's a special product. It, it is a special variety. And when I first walked into the kiln and Dad had this new variety that I don't think was named at the time, I said, what the hell is that shit? You know? It, it, well, you, it, you were negative. I was negative. It. I was yeah. like, oh, my goodness. You know, I was still had a a, a very um, student drinking nose, so yeah. it was the cheapest beer you could possibly buy <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but... You know, it smelled like the cat had pissed in the corner of the yeah. shed. Um, and you're like, how in the hell could anyone possibly want this? Um, and then as it came through, and then I remember one of the first, I can't remember the name of the, the brewery, but one of the first beers I had, I was like, oh, my goodness, this stuff's like gold dust. Mm-hmm. You know, I have never tasted anything like this. But then I thought to myself, it's going to be very polarizing yeah, because the beer drinking public are not used to things like this. Um, so, and you, if you, Nelson Sovereign was released about 25 years ago. Um, and it then went through that phase of people weren't too sure about it. And then, and, and craft brew came, craft brewers came to liken it from about 15 years ago. And Mm -hmm. it's been on an upward trajectory from there. Well, we only, Um, yeah, I mean, it was 
it was impossible to get yeah. like a couple of years ago. The and size brewery we were, it was just like, no, yeah. no chance. It's, it's contracted and up for the next 10 years or something. And it was very hard for growers in New Zealand as well too because we're so small and everyone's wanting it. And and they were saying, oh, you're holding back product to give to other brewers and, and, and this and that. But that wasn't the truth. The truth is, A, we physically couldn't produce the amount that was requested Mm -hmm. and B, the farmers didn't really have the money because we were still trying to pull ourselves out of the hole of of what we were in. So investment in farmland and um, structures and things in New Zealand are far more significant costs than what other hop browsers experience around Mm -hmm. the world. Um, So, you know, we're all family farms. We've all got families that, you know, food needs to go on the table and things like that. And when it comes to increasing an, an area or putting in, millions of dollars worth of investment into machinery, we've got to credit the craft brew phase for doing it because I don't know where we'd be. Well, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. Yeah. Um, so we're very thankful. And we wouldn't be sitting here right now. There, there has yeah. to be all of these things feed into each other, which is the beautiful kind of synergy yeah. that, that, that yeah. comes from our supply chain. Yeah. It's that brewers have driven you to push yourselves. Yeah. And with that, we've pushed ourselves. Yeah. And then hopefully, you know, we've grown a consumer base that is passionate about about these things as we are. Yeah. Now let's, so we talked a little bit about like Nelson there, but let's talk about you as Mac Hops and like your processes because the passion is so clear in what you do and how you are about your product. And we kind of touched on that you 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 would sleep next to the kiln two hours a night or if that, as you're doing it. Now, what is the process? You want to get the, the most aroma you can out of this hop. You want it to be the best for the brewer as it possibly can be. You are very precise in what, what you're doing. So can you just walk us a little bit through the process of uh, harvesting to kilning to, yeah. uh, you know, the next bit is maybe not as fascinating, but the, the harvest to kiln and then what you're doing yeah. to, to try and utilize that hop to its maximum potential. I'll take it right back to the start. To, okay, let's you go. Know, back, back to sort of when things come out of spring and stuff like that, it's all um, your hop training date is also very important, but also those shoots that you select that come from that plant, you know, in a hop plant for your listeners, they might not know, it comes away it looks like asparagus. Mm-hmm. Um, they look like asparagus shoots. And uh, just a wee side note that hop shoots are actually the most expensive um, vegetable in, in, the world, in the world. Wow. Yeah, so and I think in um, Belgium and stuff they have a hop shoot festival, and it's the, but it's only the white ones. And I think it's about a 1,000 euros a kg Holy or something. Smokes. But that's the white form of it. It's quite yeah. hard to get that. Sorry, that was a side note. No, that's <laughs> an interesting side note. Um, but as they come away, you know, you don't want to train those vigorous ones that fly away. You know, people will put them on the string and think this is going to be great. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to grow so fast. You don't want those fast-growing ones. So you want to have the ones that are, that are consistent growers. So it's not your first shoots. It's normally the secondary ones that come away through. And the time, that timing is critical because timing of that, getting that right with the weather conditions you've currently got, what you've got going on the back of your head of what the summer's going to be like, um, and preempting that, and we select those shoots, and we have, you know, we've got hop trainers who've been working us for 10, 12, 15 years, and you know, it's an art, it's a profession, mm-hmm. and they're setting our crop. 
you know, those guys are brilliant at what they do and they, as I say, they're professionals. Um, yeah. We're there monitoring them every every day, um, how they're all going about it, but the guys we have are, are fantastic. Um, as, as the plant grows up, um, you know, a hot, hot bind becomes a bind because it's got, um, you know, people get confused between vine and bind, but it doesn't really matter, mm-hmm. um, but the hot bind grows up the string and we want to we don't want it to be fast growth because what we want it to do is grow even and consistent and then as it grows up it loops over the top of the wire then it shuts off its sap throw flow and then it spreads out its basically spreads out its wings which mm-hmm. are its branches it can't go up so it's got to go out um, as it goes out it puts the branches out and then the hop cones grow on the branches um, so all of it has got critical timings yeah. and you've got to be out in the field with um, you know, checking your irrigation, um, fertiliser, everything like that and the requirement of the plant. If you see something out on that plant you've and, and, and you notice that you've missed it by four or five days, you've got to be that proactive that you've got to be partially guessing but knowing and at the same time, you know, what do I need to keep feeding this plant? Because it's, it's a very vigorous plant. You know, five metres in growth in the space of, six to eight weeks, um, there's a significant amount of nutrient that's required. So every step along the way... Totally connected. Yeah. You have to be totally connected to it. And it gets... Similar to the beer brewing process where it's just like every step of the way you need to know what's going on with it. Yeah. So that then leads us on to, as it grows through, we can't... Mother Nature just gives us what gives us. We don't do anything artificial in that sense. And then when we get to harvest time, then the art comes with picking what window... Now, on most farms in New Zealand, you've got a few different soil types, and soil types can help affect not the taste of the variety, but how that variety can hold on, um, how it can develop, and, and things like that. On our farm at home, well, we've got two farms at home, so we've got our home farm, which we've had since yeah, the 1900, and our new farm we purchased uh, six years ago, and we strategically purchased that block of land because it's a heavy clay block. And on the, and this is what, you know, track's going to be brewing with is, is um, clay-grown hops and and we put our Nelson Sovereign specifically on that because we can hold it really, really nicely and keep it in, in fantastic conditions. We, so t- cool. we took it off our home farm to put onto the new farm because we weren't happy with a couple of years' worth of growth patterns. So we're like, right, it's not working. That's so it's, cool. It's going to go on the <laughs> clay farm. So we strategically have the ability to place things to the soil conditions that we have. So at harvest time, we are basically out taking tests. I'm out in the field all hours of the day, um, making sure that where we're going to next is the right field. Um, we've got six or eight blocks of Nelson Sovens spaced over three or four kilometres on, on our farm. What are your emotions at this time? Like pure excitement or like nerves, nervous excitement because you don't know how this is... Well, you, you've got a feeling for what it's going to go like, but... Um, yeah, you do have a feeling for what it's going to go like, but yeah, it's, it is a nervousness because each time you start a new block, you're constantly questioning yourself, have I got this right? I've got the tests in front of me, I've mm-hmm. done this. And, you know, it 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 comes out of a lot of experience. Like I, I love it when I take the brewers out into the field and I say, all right, okay, what do you reckon? And they're like, oh, you know, it's smelling great. You know, I think you must be going to harvest them soon. And I'm like, no, no, this has got another seven days or mm-hmm. eight days or we'll be harvesting roughly this time, but I'll check it, you know. And you have to be very strategic with how you do things. And if we were to see a variety that came through the shed that I, I've gone out and gone, yep, no, I'm, 
I'm convinced this is right and it comes through the shed that maybe it isn't quite right and it's not picking off quite as well. It's in our own best interest to stop that and go back onto a variety that that is Mm -hmm. in the right window. Um, So we are very strategic with how we place our varieties around the farm and the harvest windows are in because if, if we're not getting the quality product out of it, the brewer's not getting it. The brewer's not getting it. The consumer's not getting it. So, yeah. It's... So anyone listening to this, just just take all of that in when you're drinking a beer or any beer. Like it's, it's almost impossible to drink the same beer twice, which is kind of interesting because of all of these variables and you kind of touched on with the Nelson that we're using today that um, there was a lot of humidity, a lot of heat, uh, but quite dull sunlight, yes. which kind of pushed aroma forward, yeah. which was quite unusual. But... Yeah maybe suppressed other parts or was it just the, a, a strange set of circumstances that led it to be a really uh, pungent kind of aroma? So, yeah, this this year, again, we're fighting with all sorts of climatic conditions as farmers these days and this year was one that we haven't seen before in, in my, you know, full-time growing time of, I don't know, probably 15-something years. Mm-hmm. And so you're constantly guessing and we um, – had a season that humidity was very, very high. I mean, our home farm is two kilometres from the coast, um, so there could be you know a reasonable amount of humidity come into the area. Our other farm's a little bit, you know, 15 k's from that. So um, it uh, was a, a strange year in terms of you had the sunshine <coughs> hours, but they're hiding behind the cloud. Mm-hmm. So hops, when they get to a point of starting to come out of what we call the burr phase, and the burr is basically the formation of the, the start of the comb, and as it comes out of it, um, the, the beta acids start forming first, and then as the beta acids come through, the alpha acids, uh, the alpha starts following. Now, the alpha acids are very, very complex, and they need a good amount of sunshine hours because they need the energy from the plant to really rip in and produce the the full bodied of oils and everything around them well this year we didn't have that at critical points so the the maturity of the um of the the different varieties that came through found that we were in different harvest windows this year so we just had to be on the ball Mm -hmm. all the time and we would send our stuff away to the lab to get tested um we'd also you know we do a lot of our own on-farm testing as well too, which we've got years and years of data, which is great to go back to. Um, but then it's not like it unless you're out in the field. And I would get some data back and it would basically scream at you, go out and pick it now. And I'd go out now. there and nope, it's not right. And would would hold it on and then another two, maybe even three more days. And then we'd jump into it and brilliant. Mm-hmm. Came through the machine, absolutely spot on. Um, and get it through the whole process and like this year what was interesting um, I remember mentioning it when we we're tipping it in, into the um, into the tin down there that, that uh, we the aroma profile and in, in the kilns didn't come through until the, those glands got unlocked with the, the bit of heat we put through it and, and the the fans oh so and, was there a moment of being like oh this doesn't the, smell yeah as there, good as it yeah, should yep yep because wow. we're but then what it did was um we could encapsulate that a lot closer to the time of when it was taken off, when the hop was ready to come off. So mm-hmm. the hop goes into the into the system when it comes off the bind, you know, roughly 80% worth of moisture, and it goes out the system anywhere from 9 to 12%. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all moisture loss, but in and around that, you've also got the potential to lose your aromas, your 
things that come through in the beer that we need to stay in that hop to um, get it to like a, a um, pressed flour as such to come through to the bale through the process so it ends up in, in the brew. And this year, you know, especially Nelson Sovin, the, the first kiln we did, it was like, oh, okay, well, we'll see how this goes. Um, well, I knew it was right um, phys- physically wise yeah. and, and how the plant looked. I was like, we've got this absolutely bang on with how it was coming through the machine. Um, and then in the kiln, we had great drying times. And when that last, um, I was getting to the last point of drying, I was like, okay, oh, hang on, hang on. And then bang, there it was. And I was like, this is bloody awesome. I'm kind of getting like butterflies thinking of what that experience must uh, be because you're, like, you, you, you're totally, yeah, the trust in your process. Yeah. It's, and and it, you know, I question myself all of the time. So you must have those thoughts of just like, maybe this is, Maybe you slightly no. I, I, or you I, were certain that it was right. I was right. certain, and I was going, "Come on, you bastard! Prove, <laughs> prove, prove me wrong!" Prove me right. And and well, I was thinking, "Prove me wrong," because I knew I was right. Okay. Yeah. So I was very happy with how we had it set up in our system to come through. And this year, I think I said before, we actually harvested um, two days earlier than normal, but mm-hmm. we needed to because that was where the Nelson. Um, sovereign profile fitted in this year with the sunshine hours and everything we got given whereas other varieties like the Rako which we we're using um, in the in this brewers as well too it actually came at the other end of Nelson sovereign now that was flipped on its head by five days you know and but we managed to get the best out of each variety to to pick the harvest window absolutely spot on so um I'm quite excited to see how it's going I'm to go. I'm really excited. <laughs> and, and, and and I hope that anyone, again, anyone that's like having the beer or something is excited just by by learning all this because it's so, so incredible. Like all of that work going further up the supply chain and then, like I said, just cracking a can or drinking it in the tap room mm. or something. And you might not take all of that in, but just know that how much hard work goes into yeah. every part of it. I hope that we can uh, do it justice. You know, we feel oh. a great pressure. Um not a pressure, an excitement, but also a nervousness because you want to get your processes right and you want to make sure that you follow all of the, the beer through that journey, yeah. like healthy fermentation to make sure that we're going to maximize the aroma and the, the beer quality, the foundation that we're building on yeah. is going to be right for that hop expression. Yeah, and then, you know, other things we now can look on and focus on on our farms um, is, is getting that, you know, maintain that quality to the standard that we're proud of putting that product mm-hmm. out and, you know, we love consumer feedback. We love our customers being our brewers, but the brewers love the consumers' feedback yeah. too. And everyone's different. Yeah, you know, it's a subjective and, thing. And it's a subjective thing, and you can put all these trial beers out and things like that, and and you'll you'll go, well, did we get a result out of that? Because we had half the people said that they they will drink a whole keg, mm-hmm. and the other half go, okay, yep, I like it, um, but I'm, I want something different out of this. So yeah. you know, it's it's. It's and fun. That, it's fun to be part of. Super, super so. fun. And I, I, I talked in previous episodes about different brewers looking for different expressions in yeah. their hops. Like people might want a kind of more hop purity, as it were, like old school kind of cascady uh, vibes. And then others like, I guess, the new wave maybe or something, yeah. one big punchy tropical notes, uh, all and, that kind of stuff. And one thing I'd like to let listeners know, you know, the, the regions around the world are quite different in what mm-hmm. they're producing. And... <clears throat> I kind of explained that um, New Zealand hops, and and I think you you listeners will pick this up over time, um, or probably already know it. 
New Zealand hops have quite a um, front of palate taste. So if you have, say, from the middle of your mouth forward to the tip of your tongue, you're going to get very nice, sharp, crisp taste. Now, the American stuff is generally sort of from the palate of the middle down towards the back of the throat. Now, what is great is when you you can use um, hops from the two different regions to produce a full body feel, but also that is the difference is what's coming through. Mm-hmm. And so brewers now have a bit of a library that they can go to to, to decide, right, we're in summertime, let's make a real crass, you know, sharp, crisp um, pilsner mm-hmm. or, or something like that, right, let's dive into these New Zealand hops or let's make something that's more full-bodied and, okay, let's mix American hops with New Zealand hops. Um, you can chuck some, there's, you know, some Australian stuff in there too if, if you feel so, <laughs> Um but you've got the opportunity as brewers as well to, to build experiment with the recipe yeah. to the season. Um, you know, stouts, everything for winter, um, mm-hmm. different hops, you know, it, it's great. You know, it's really good. That's I didn't actually know that about, like, whereabouts you pick it up. But New Zealand hops, I always describe as almost like having a long, they, they've got such an intensity, yeah. like an immediate yep. intensity. Yep. So that, that makes total sense. Mm. Now, we have talked long and hard about hops and that's been so cool. And I think there's going to be so much to take away, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about beer as well, <laughs> about your journey with, with beer and the, and how you balance those two worlds. Now yeah. you briefly mentioned it to me, but what, what was the, you know, the, a beer that really kind of let you know what could be done yeah. with hops? Well, you know, I was a student just like most of the listeners um, and yourself, Stefan, would have been. So it was the ability of how many you could pound back in, in one session. So quality over quantity wasn't wasn't where I was at. So yep. when I um, if, when I went to the States, I was lucky enough to um, uh, go to Sierra Nevada and stuff like that. And I actually went back for a couple of three years. I got um, quite good friends with the guys down there. And... Um, uh, there's a um, Tom down there. He developed a machine um, that was a medical machine that you'd put a uh, a straw into the top of a, a bottle, and then you'd bring it. Um, you'd go back into uh, another wall, and you'd be on the side by a computer. And so you'd be on this nose cone, and you'd be sn- smelling all these different um, aroma profiles that would come off that beer. <laughs> And it was great because he put, so, he put the Southern Hemisphere um, Pale Ale, I think it was, and it was hops that they'd picked out from um, New Zealand hops. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I was sitting there for about an hour and 15 minutes and here's a guy who's in the hop industry thinking that after 10 minutes your beer's going to go flat and it's not going to taste as good. And, you know, after 15 minutes I would smell lawns someone had gone and cut the grass and then it would last for a minute or two and then that would disappear and then nothing 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 then say after the 33rd minute someone had been out into the peach orchard and gone and picked peaches you know it was absolutely instant Mm -hmm. and I smelled it the whole way through the process and I that gave me a huge appreciation and respect for beer Mm -hmm. after that because we had been led to believe that in the wine industry, things mature as, you know, red wines, as, as it's more open from the bottle and things, you get more flavours come through and you can allow it to warm up a little bit and, and things like that. And and I was like, holy crap, this is actually like the wine industry as such. And everyone was sort of saying, you know, back at the start of the craft beer phase, wouldn't it be amazing if, if the beer industry could have more bottles on the shelf than what the wine industry does? Well, we're at that point now. Yeah. You know, and, and it's phenomenal. You go into these supermarkets 
And all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, <laughs> there are a lot of beers here and mm-hmm. all of them have got different flavour profiles. So that was my first re- reckoning was when I was on that nose cone and I was like, okay, my perception is going to change big time from here and I think this craft beer phase is going to be here for a very, very long time and soon it won't be called a micro industry. Yeah. Um, and, and this is before you... The, gone back to the farm to yep to, yeah yep yeah this was on the on the verge of do you think if you hadn't had that experience you would have gone back to the farm um i i think i probably still would have because yeah. i wanted the challenge i was like you know it wasn't the um it wasn't the pressure of being a you know going on to be a fifth generation farm there was no pressure about that mm-hmm. i was going right there's an opportunity that i can take and i'm gonna bloody take it yeah so um yeah that that was uh, yeah, my opportunity, but then I also saw what the potential could be, mm-hmm. and the potential wasn't just in the hops; it was what the brewers are going to come up with. And we are not finished here, you know. There, oh man, there, <laughs> there's still so much more there's, road to tread. So much more, and that's so exciting about the train tra- train tracks we're on. You know, we're just we're just going down the, the system, and we're learning more and more and more, and the sharing of information is fantastic yeah it's like open sourced kind of yep yeah 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 and for me to come over you know for a decent trip halfway around the world just to see our hops get into a brew around here that Mm -hmm. your customers are going to hopefully love um that's a very proud moment Um, it's amazing so yeah it's so cool so that's a perfect point to kind of so i like to ask a question where we kind of look forward to the future you know Mm -hmm. we've covered historical hop growing you know we could obviously do four five days talking about that never mind hours um but how do you see the future of hop production and brewing working together like this could be purely hop production or how breweries and hop producers work together let's just pan out to the next five years what are the kind of things that you want to see and that you think you're going to see um I, th- I think uh, the big thing for both farmer and for brewer is the confidence in the supply chains. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had, um, co- everyone's had a shitty deal with COVID mm-hmm. um, and the whole world has and supply chains have been impacted with shipping and things like that. Um, it's been hard from New Zealand. We've, we're down the other end of the world and the ships just didn't want to stop. But at least we had the confidence that when our hops go straight from the farm, they go into cool storage. And when you get them straight into cool storage, you settle things down. And if we get them pelleted or sent out as whole bales, they go refrigerated. Mm-hmm. Now, for brewers and farmers, um, we are confident in our supply chain to get it to that stage or we need to be. Um, and then you've got a stabilised product that you can brew with. But then from then on, brewers have to be confident that the people who are handling their cans and everything like that are handling in the way that it's not going to degrade so the consumer is getting exactly what we're trying so hard to achieve. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the industry needs to impress on the industry as a whole, brewing, hop growing, everything has to impress on the people who have got the cans in the stores, you know, that are getting to their customers you know, keep them refrigerated. Um, don't leave them in ambient. Don't just leave them outside all the time. We we want our consumers to be getting the product that we want them to get. Mm-hmm. Um, it's out of our hands. We've done what we can do from now. So, you know, we need to make sure that they are pulling their socks up and you know and doing their side of the game because that link is very very important. 
um, in, in the chain. What we you guys released from the brewery here, you're like, oh my, my goodness, this is this is bang on. And some of the feedback you might get two or three months later from cans that are not being stored well, it's completely out of your hands. You are hoping that things will And it is heartbreaking. It, it is. Yeah. Because you're just and, like, all of that work's gone in. And it, I don't, you know, want to hold because there's small shops out there and they might not be able to afford refrigeration yeah, oh, for everything. For sure. Yeah. But like if you can. It's just such a huge difference, man. Like you yeah. say, it's the yeah. best representation but, possible but from, the, the, from you planting a hop in the ground right down to yeah. us brewing the beer. But also the beauty about those small shops is is the turnover they can have. You know, they mm-hmm. they they know what their beer drinking consumers want and what style of hops and things, and they can turn over cans very, very quickly. It's the bigger guys that, that may not have that ability to do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that would be a, a good thing to see um, for, for everyone's benefit right through the whole supply chain. But also, um, you know, breeding is you've got to remember as consumers that what you guys are tasting now, we have gotten out the crystal ball, shaken the snow globe around and gone, this is what we predict is mm-hmm. going to be what you're going to see in 12 to 15 years come to the market. So your varieties that are coming through now have actually been bred that long ago mm-hmm. um, and we are pinpointing those what we call in New Zealand hops with a difference um, that are different to others and are unique and that's what we see in the plant um, and how it's bred and how it comes through the system and that's what we hope the brewers are finding too um, that we're not sitting still we're not um, sitting back going yes Nelson Sovereign's amazing let's take the next five to ten years off breeding and just grow Nelson Sovereign we are constantly constantly checking um, New Zealand hops has a um, a really good partnership with with plant and food and that's our New Zealand breeders mm-hmm. they've got two or three generations worth of scientists there who have come through the system with growers on their shoulders riding on the coattails and we're putting four to five hundred single hop beers through a system Amazing. that we can constantly check back to go and out of those four or five hundred beers that comes from two or three thousand crosses in a year you know we are not trying to release a scattergun approach saying here you go brewers see how you go with this one mm-hmm. we're going to brewers now and saying we're very confident that you're going to come and be back with a massive order for this variety because you're <laughs> going to want to keep it in your beer because why because we've spent millions of dollars getting it to that stage wow we would be dumb investors if we did not go. If you were trying to force people yep. to drink something that wasn't good. The last um, two years, uh, the last three years, we've pulled two varieties that have gotten through to a couple of hectares worth of um, trial stage because we've got no, we don't believe it's right there. Well, that's been pulled out of the system with, I don't know, one or two million dollars plus worth spent on it already. Wow. So we want to be that confident that what we release is absolutely market. Mm-hmm. based market led and gonna work for our customers being the brewers and then the brewers are then gonna give it to their customers which are the, the drinking public and they're gonna go holy crap if I see that hop name on a can I'm buying it for myself and for my friends because I can show off saying this is gonna be awesome. Yeah. So yeah. It's so funny, isn't it, that you still get the, the divisive ones come through that people but i guess it's a subjective thing isn't it so everything brings its own but um you know back back the party back when nelson sovereign came through it, it was that polarizing one yeah. too we've got one in the breeding program that they come through that it, it smells like the dirty socks <laughs> and stuff like that and you're going 
but there's this word called dank and diesel yeah, and, and people it's like love it. <laughs> they're going to find some brewers out there who are going to go oh my goodness yeah bring it on and yeah. and so that's that's what we have to balance up and so and and the monetary side of things too for for the growers and families we are subsidizing you know the breeding programs and things like that so we can produce top quality hops so amazing mm. now the last question I generally ask is a beer focused one, which is like pre the apocalypse is coming and it's what beer are you going to drink? But I feel like we should do a hop spin on this. So if every hop was just going to be wiped out apart from one breed that for, would forever, every beer would have to be brewed with that what? beer. What, what hop would you select as the survival? Can can I suggest two? Okay, we okay. <laughs> can go with two. And I have two two reasons for this okay. being. Um, one being uh, Rewalker. Yeah. Um, Rewalker is, no one can explain what it does in beer. Um, <clears throat> it is an expensive hop for brewers to buy. There's there's no denying that. Um, but it's also a very hard hop for growers to grow. But Rewalker, honestly, you put it in beer and it is, it is unexplainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, we'll, we'll continue to grow it now that we've got the confidence that people are prepared to pay money that it's viable to grow on the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other hop I'd go for currently that's coming through the system is um, NZH 102. It hasn't been named yet, hasn't been properly commercialised, but we got smashed to smithereens our farm two years ago with hail and it was uh, it was tough. It was tough for our farm, tough for our family, tough for our staff. Um, but we came through it. Now, I filmed half an hour's worth of hail hitting NZH-102, and it was like in being in a boxing ring with Mike Tyson, and it was taking a pounding, and it came through it unbelievable. And it, that was pretty awesome to see, heartbreaking, but awesome to see that that one variety did, did very, very well. But what it does in beer, it's the highest oiled hop um, that New Zealand hops has got, but it's balanced oils. Um, and what I explained it as being like, and some of the brewers in New Zealand have been lucky enough to brew with it, oh, and, and it's slowly being released out, and it's like the dinner plate. So when you go and have a food, that dinner plate's there, and you put the food on top. Well, if you don't have the dinner plate, you're eating scraps off the floor. Mm-hmm. But it has got such an amazing backbone to the beer. That oh, is, so this is kind of like it's citra it, mosaic kind of you know, it, foundational hop. That found, foundational can, hop yeah. that I think a lot of brewers are going to go, oh, my gosh, whatever I put in with this variety. I would, I, I will honestly say here now it's not, it may not necessarily be a standalone hop in a, in a can by itself. Mm-hmm. It, look, it's won awards so yeah. far doing that, but it's it's one that you can put another American hop variety, another New Zealand hop variety with it, and it will pull notes out of those varieties that you've never had before. Oh, man. And the reason being there's there's so many oils, complex oils in there that in one package are like the best Christmas present you've received in a long time. Oh, my days. So. <laughs> uh, can we have some, please? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll speak to, to, to the Yakima team and see if we can get that. Yeah. You've definitely sold it there, yeah. Brent. Um, thanks so much for doing this, Brent. Don't really, like really appreciate it. And to be honest, I could. I feel like we've we could do this for another couple of hours easy yeah and, and, um, and, and apologies for banging on so oh much, no but it's it, amazing know, it's, yeah it's my life it's in the blood and, and that's what we do and it and it comes across and i i should say a big shout out to yakima as well who've kind of set this whole thing up so very appreciative of those guys yeah. would it be nice to uh maybe we can do this again and expand a little bit more on that relationship as well and yeah how they've come to you guys have come to work together but yeah, yeah. 
Thank you very much, Brent. No, Let's go get a beer. It's, it's been great, and I hope you listeners enjoy the, the beer that you're tasting. <laughs> yeah, so. I hope so too. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And that's it. Another episode done. I hope that's inspired you to want to go and buy a four-pack of our collaboration. It was great to sit down with Brent. And as I said, you get so much of a sense of the passion and care that goes in to growing hops when you sit down with someone like Brent. And I hope that that came across in the interview. A big thanks to Tom Coucher for producing this episode. If you want to like, subscribe, share, whatever you want to do, it's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another another episode. Um, but until then, stay thirsty.